Hello everyone, I'm Neil Houlihan, a partner in the Linklaters Antitrust and Foreign Investment Team, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this installment of our Foreign Investment Podcast Series. This session will deal with the Investment Canada Act, one of the longest standing FDI regimes in the world, and one from which many of the more recent have drawn inspiration. I have the pleasure to be joined by Julie Soloway, partner at the law firm Blake's, and Catherine Burke, uh, Director General of the Investment Review Branch of the Department of Innovation, Science and Economic Development in Canada. To kick things off, I will turn over to Julie to provide an overview of the existing regime and for Kate to then give us some insight into some of the amendments that are currently being considered. Over to you, Julie. Thank you, Neil, for having me on the podcast. It is a real pleasure uh, to be here uh, with Kate. Um, so. To kick off, to provide some context and background on Canada, generally speaking, it's a relatively small open economy. Uh, Canada does remain very welcoming to foreign investment. And as part of that, Canada has a long established foreign investment regime that has been around since the 1970s. Historically, this regime was meant to provide politicians the ability to review large foreign investments in Canadian-based companies. Although less than a handful of such investments were ever blocked, this was the primary focus of the Investment Canada Act. And it was really about targeting the hollowing out of Canadian head offices, research and development, jobs, and all of those high-level corporate functions that would reside typically uh, in a large, a large company. Over the last decade or so, that focus has shifted, and the, in Canada's FDI regime has begun to incorporate a strong national security screening component. This is just a screening process historically, primarily because investors needed only to file a short notification form and they could do so after closing. These changes have increased as they have around the world, keeping pace with, with other foreign investment review regimes during the course of the pandemic to significantly expand the intensity of national security reviews. It is no longer just military and defense investments that are covered by national security. It is healthcare, personal data, critical minerals, supply chains, artificial intelligence, among many other areas. This past December, the Canadian government proposed sweeping revisions to the Investment Canada Act that primarily included a broader requirement for mandatory pre-closing filings and a much higher penalty for failing to file. Once implemented, and hopefully Kate will be able to shed some light on when that will be, it will fundamentally change how parties need to approach foreign investment review in Canada. And most significantly for practitioners is the shift from a post-closing filing requirement to a pre-closing filing requirement. And um, that will have a lot of implications on allocation of regulatory risk, which we'll talk a little bit more later in the podcast. In any event, it's clear that the Canadian government is taking a much more active approach to foreign direct investment, and we'll have to wait and see the details of the final version of the amendments 
and associated regulations to see the full scope of the impact. We have a great opportunity today to speak with Kate Burke, who is in charge of the Investment Review Division, and hear more directly about why these changes are being proposed and what non-Canadian investors can expect moving forward. So with that, let me turn it over to Kate to lay things out for us. What is the overall objective of the legislation introduced in December? And what is the genesis of the amendments and to what sectors will it be most applicable? Thanks so much, Julie. And as you say, I am really pleased to be here to have the chance to talk a little bit about some of the amendments that have been proposed, as well as uh, some of the context in which these changes are being considered. So as you mentioned, Canada is an open market economy and foreign investment plays a critical role in our continued growth and prosperity. Foreign direct investment supports new technology, employment, high paying jobs, and access for markets for Canadian companies to grow abroad. So we see the Investment Canada Act as just part of a framework that helps ensure that Canada is able to continue to attract needed positive foreign investment. Of course, positive foreign investment is the goal, but there is some investment that can come that is not, um, not really directed to Canada's interests and may, may be harmful for Canada. Historically, as you mentioned, that focus has been on economic implications, uh, harmful to our competition, to employment in Canada or productivity. That's been what we look at through the net benefit review process. The national security review process, more recent for sure, um, but we have been developing more and more uh, technique and attention and expertise in that area as we have seen the rise in economic-based threats to national security. So really the genesis of this series of amendments is responding to a number of different things. One, responding to those strategic and geopolitical changes. We have seen over the last decade and more an increase in foreign hostile state and non-state actors who seek to undermine Canada's rules-based system and, in fact, the rules-based system of the international trading environment. Foreign investment can be a vector for that kind of foreign interference. And increasingly, we are recognizing that technology and national security are inextricably linked. At the same time as wanting to update our act to reflect these realities, we also want to make sure that we're improving investor certainty and transparency, because that's what supports a welcoming investment client at uh, climate. Pardon me. Um, so we want to enhance the regulatory certainty and the speed of the reviews where we can to further promote positive investment in Canada. The last element that has been the context for these changes is the goal of protecting Canada's innovation economy. The value of intangible assets has grown in importance immensely in the last decades, and it has become a defining feature of a country's economic strength. We need to make sure that we have the tools to ensure that we can maintain Canadian in innovation in Canadian control. So that's the context that led to these amendments that are now being debated in Parliament. Um, and Julie, you mentioned what we would consider the most significant practical change, and that is moving from a mandatory filing requirement for all investments where you're allowed to file post-implementation to a situation where certain types of investments will be required to file pre-implementation. So that is a shift 
in timing of that filing requirement more than it is a change in the kind of filing requirement. I want to stress there that we're taking a targeted approach with this amendment. And across the board, pre-filing, pre-implementation filing requirement, without regard to the nuance of the business sector, the type of transaction, or all of the relevant facts, would be an unnecessary burden on beneficial investment into Canada. And we all know that there is a correlation between regulatory burden and economic development and economic growth. So we want to make sure that we take a targeted approach to this new requirement. So we want to make sure that we are really aligning these changes with the sectors that we are increasingly concerned about. So what sectors are they? Um, you alluded to a number of them, Julie, and I think that for a lot of listeners, uh, the list of sectors that we're going to be concerned about aren't going to be a surprise. Artificial intelligence, aerospace, medical technology, um, anything relating to quantum science or uh, semiconductors, these kinds of things. In fact, we have a list on our website that lists the 15 sectors of concern. The process of the regulations that will follow these amendments will become more granular where we, the government is going to be able to develop a specific list of technologies, not just sectors. So investors will know whether or not they fall into this category of having a mandatory pre-implementation filing or not. So that's just the most significant change in terms of these amendments. There are a number of other changes that we're making as well, um, including the change to the penalties, as you indicated, Julie. We need to make sure that the penalties reflect more than just the cost of doing business, but a serious and meaningful deterrent to ensure compliance. There's also some new rules proposed that will allow the minister to accept undertakings that will mitigate national security risk, that is legally binding conditions on a transaction, that will help us identify and limit national security harm to avoid a scenario where a block or divestiture may be required. There's also a new authority to impose interim conditions. And the goal of that is to be able to impose limitations on the behavior of parties during a review so that national security harm doesn't occur during the review process in a way that can't be remedied by a divestiture, for example. We're also making some changes to improve our information sharing with our international counterparts, not only our Five Eyes counterparts, but a number of the other countries that we work closely with, close allies, uh, who have also been developing their own foreign investment review regimes in recent years. And then finally, some new rules for the protection of information in the course of a judicial review that will allow us to make sure that we um, share the classified information in a way that doesn't disclose uh, that information um, in, a, in a way that would be harmful to Canada's national security interests. So those are, in some <laughs> very high level sense of what all of the amendments that we're, uh, we're considering are. In terms of when are they going to come into force, I can't say. That, of course, is up to Parliament at the moment. Uh, this week, actually, it's in second reading, which means um, we're just through the first part of the process, but there's many more steps to come. And so until it comes through and gets that final royal assent, we're just not sure exactly what the final text will read or when that's actually going to happen. Great. Thanks, Kate. I mean, it certainly sounds like um, we can expect quite a significant change of scene and expansion of the available powers. I'm sure our, read, our listeners would be interested to hear any insights you can provide on the agency's enforcement priorities with these new powers in mind. 
Absolutely. I think that to some degree, the enforcement priorities that we're going to have, and by that I take you to mean the areas of particular concern that, that we have, Right. I think that you really can see where the government is focusing its attention already, not just in the uh, new guidelines we updated in 2021 with a new specific list of 15 sectors, as I mentioned, um, but also by looking at some of the decisions that have taken place recently. Uh, the, our minister has made an announcement about a number of different divestitures, for example, that were ordered recently in the area of critical minerals, specifically relating to lithium. So I think we can say we will definitely see a continued interest in critical minerals as that relates to our obligations to continue the greening of our economy. And that transition to a low or no carbon economy is really connected to our national security as well. And so I think we're going to see a continued interest in that sector broadly, including associated sectors like uh, semiconductors, for example, or other new evolving technologies um, that supports the uh, transition to low carbon. I think another uh, sector, um, it's not really a sector, but I think an area of really keen and increasing interest is data and the use of data. I think in the last decade, undeniably, one of a company's most valuable assets has become its data sets, the information it has about its clients or about um, uh, citizens generally, the kind of information that supports the development and increasing effectiveness of artificial technology or machine learning, for example. Those assets are becoming increasingly the um, object of attention by national security reviews globally, and that's true in Canada as well. So I think sensitive data and critical minerals are definitely going to be, we're going to continue to see those as some of the particular areas of interest. I think it's worth noting that uh, Canada is not unique in focusing on these things. If you look at our uh, counterparts in the UK or Australia or the United States, very similar sectors or technologies of concern. Uh, in fact, if you look at the new legislation in the UK, they have 17 sectors of concern. Uh, we have 15 so far. They mirror each other almost exactly. So these really are a common under, commonly understood areas of particular concern when it comes to um, economic-based threats to national security. Great, super helpful. So another, thing that I'm interested to learn more about is how you uh, and the agency approach the analysis of cases. And then from Julie also, in light of that, how you recommend um, parties dealing with Investment Canada Act filings or approaching the agency for approvals uh, should prepare. Yeah, of course. Um, so the process, I would say, of the review, I mean, there's a formal structure and, and I think uh, listeners who are interested could definitely look on our website and find our schematics that lay it all out. In short, there's about three phases of a review generally. And the review can start as soon as the minister becomes aware of a transaction. So I think that's a really important point. We begin our review as soon as we have any idea that there is a transaction that may be concerning. Um, and we can learn about transactions from the business press or from our colleagues and counterparts within the government or international counterparts. Also, of course, we learn about them from the parties themselves who may reach out to us proactively even before a filing is made. So I would say that 
because we are, we hope being as transparent as we can about what kinds of things will trigger a concern, we are seeing an increasing practice of counsel reaching out to us to let us know about a transaction, frequently to try to reassure us that there's no concern there. And that's definitely a really valuable thing from our perspective. It allows us to get a jump on things, to understand what's at stake, what the details of a transaction are. And so I would really characterize the review process, even from those earliest stages, as iterative. And it's about us asking questions to understand as much as we can about what's going on, what the companies do, what their footprint is in Canada, if any, connections to governments, domestic or foreign, um, and what the intentions of the investment are, like why is this investment happening? Why did this investor choose this Canadian company? All of that really goes into that first level of analysis that we do to identify whether or not we think there's more here that we need to spend time looking at. So that really looks like conversations and exchanges of information with the bar and with investors. I would say, and I, I hope Julie agrees, that we have a very collegial, collaborative relationship with the bar, uh, a lot of sophisticated Canadian ca uh, counsel who know how this process works. Um, and so they're really able to provide advice to their client about being as transparent and proactive and sharing information with us as possible. The more that happens, the faster we can get to the nub of the problem, if in fact there is a problem there. As the review continues, the government does share a summary of its concerns with the investor. And the goal of that is to make sure that investors have the opportunity to really speak as specifically as they can to the concerns that government has. Uh, and that is a necessary component of the process to make sure that uh, not just that there is you know, procedural fairness, but that there's no misunderstanding about uh, sort of technical implications of something or what the, the um, genesis of, a, of an investment might be. Julie? Yeah, I think uh, you make a really great point, Kate, about the great relationship that the uh, Canadian Foreign Investment uh, Review Bar has with the Investment Review Division, you and, and your team. Um, I, think, I think that's very positive. And that is really, um, a function of, I think originally how this engagement began was in the context of a net benefit review, which is a bit of a different animal than a national security review. So in a net benefit review, typically you're driving towards a negotiation of undertakings that will ultimately be made to the minister uh, by an investor um, to establish a net benefit uh, to Canada. And you, we, it is an iterative process, as you say, and, and council is keen to advocate and influence the process, provide as much information as possible, keep the frank, open uh, dialogue flowing, picking up the phone, sending emails. Uh, so all in all, typically a very high level of engagement with your team um, in the context of a net benefit review. Um, national security reviews, by their very nature, um, because they involve um, things that investors or targets or council may not be aware of and, and the government may not be in a position to share uh, a lot of information there. It, it's a little more limited. And um, sometimes in our experience, investors have waited you know, several months 
um, for the government to give a statement of concerns or any detail. Um, and, and sometimes it's a little bit thin compared to what we would expect in a, in a net benefit review. So as a practitioner, um, advising clients on the advocacy um, of the investment and uh, the ability to address concerns can be challenging um, because there's often sort of a more constrained role for substantive arguments or discussions with the government and um, on potential remedies. But I, I think that is changing. And I think that is contemplated by the legislation that is being proposed with the uh, specific uh, uh, reference to the remedies and negotiation of remedies. And I think as it becomes increasingly common to encounter substantive scrutiny in the national security realm, I think that, and as these reviews become more and more frequent prior to closing, uh, the role for substantive advocacy will expand. Um, so we're sort of hoping and driving towards a more transparent uh, uh, process, noting that the whole national security context means that there will be an element of, of sort of relative uh, discretionary decision making, which is somewhat opaque. Um, Cutting through the opacity will give practitioners, of course, and foreign investors a better ability to assist and support the government in doing its job and maintaining this um, consistent and predictable process that companies can rely on. With that in mind, I would ask Kate, to what extent should parties seek a frank and open conversation with the regulators, given the increase in pre-closing filings and the nature of the government's substantive national security concerns? Do you expect there'll be more transparency from the government? And at what level will the national security review apparatus be open to this type of advocacy? I think that's a really good question. And I recognize absolutely the frustration that so many investors and Canadian businesses as well, I should note they, that both parties feel very frustrated sometimes with the amount of information the government can disclose through the review process itself. Um, I recognize that, of course, it's frustrating. Uh, and those long silences that you sometimes get are frustrating too. I want to, you know, I reassure Julie when we work together on these and everyone else is like, we are doing our work. Sometimes we just don't have questions for the investor at that time. Time, we're doing other consultations, talking to other people. Um, but it is definitely a more opaque process. That's the nature of national security, meaning we just can't disclose all the information with, uh, with the parties. I think nonetheless, regardless of that, we do really want to emphasize as much as we can transparency. And from our perspective, there's two kinds of transparency. There's the transparency where we want to be as clear as predictable and specific as we can be for Canadians, Canadian businesses, investors, prospective investors about what the process looks like. So you can predict how long is it going to take, probably what kinds of issues are we going to be concerned about, what are some potential outcomes that you might be wanting to expect and perhaps plan for. So there's the transparency of the process and kind of writ large how this works. And then there's the transparency for the investor itself who's going through this specific review. 
And because of the very strong confidentiality requirements we have in the Act, we can be a little bit more transparent with the parties in review. Um, we want to be transparent with them and hope that they're transparent with us. We do require that, um, but we give we do that within the bubble of the confidentiality requirements, meaning if they're transparent with us about their plans, their history, their IP, their connections with foreign governments, whatever it might be, we cannot use that information we receive for any purpose other than the review itself. That confidentiality requirement we see as a tentpole for the efficacy of this process. Um, it allows for exactly what Julie has referred to, frank and hopefully imaginative conversations about what kind of remedy we might be able to identify to resolve the national security harm that we are identifying in a particular transaction. So the more frank and earlier that frank conversation can occur, the more effective it is for everybody involved. And um, I do think, I agree with Julie, that um, one of these amendments, the amendment that will allow the minister to accept legally binding undertakings, may see us go down a path uh, where we see more what I like to call self-remedying transactions. That is to say, transactions where there may have been a potential national security harm or an actual harm. However, the parties in identifying that harm or the potential harm will have structured the transaction to actually remedy the problem before it even comes to the review process. So that the review is really just about testing that, making sure that it's gonna be sufficient and then coming to an agreement at the end that the parties will in fact move forward in that way. So I, I do think we will see more of that. That does require a degree of imagination that I am very confident in the Canadian bar and having. They know themselves and their clients best. So bringing those ideas, those potential workable, operationally workable solutions to potential harm will definitely mean this process is more effective in the end in both supporting investment and therefore prosperity, as well as protecting Canadian national security interests. Um, at the bottom line, though, I fully appreciate that we will never be able to be as bluntly transparent as parties may wish. That is, unfortunately, the inherent reality when we're talking about national security. Thank you both. Certainly a lot of good practical points there for pilots to bear in mind. And it is really pleasing to hear that an open dialogue can be useful to reach a sort of agreeable outcome or solution, because that is not necessarily always the case in my experience in other jurisdictions, which can often operate as somewhat of a black box. Before it we is wrap our goal, even if it's not our, uh, we don't necessarily achieve it all the time, but it's definitely our goal. That's great. Yeah, ambition is always welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> before we do wrap up, um, I wonder if you could each briefly just look ahead to where you see uh, some challenges, challenges or political headwinds that may impact the enforcement landscape. Well, I think I'll definitely leave uh, Julie to talk about political headwinds that she might be seeing. I think she's better placed than I. And um, I will say we're in a very interesting moment right now because as I mentioned, the legislation is being actively debated in our parliament right now. And uh, there's definitely some different perspectives. So we'll see what the final legislation looks like uh, after it makes its way through the parliamentary process. From a practitioner's perspective as the regulator, I can say, just reiterate that I think three of the things that are gonna continue to be top of mind for us are critical minerals in all of its different permutations, 
um, data and the impact of data and the sources. So there's different kinds of technologies from social technologies, social media, et cetera, to healthcare and things like that. So I think data is going to be, continue to be of increasing attention. And then finally, the role of state-owned enterprises. I think that's something we've seen for the last uh, decade or so, maybe a little less. Um, and I think we'll be paying continued attention to that as we look at heightened competition internationally and a closer connection between uh, critical goods and services and supply chains and really making sure that Canada has access to the things we need um, and looking at the different ways in which a state-owned player may distort that. Julie? Thanks, Kate. Good, good intel for the practitioner on this podcast from you. Thank you. Um, I think going forward, I'll jump right into the most salient point for the practitioner is, and I alluded to this uh, at the beginning, is really risk allocation, regulatory risk allocation between the parties in the negotiation of a transaction agreement. Um, assuming these uh, amendments are adopted as in, in the framework that we're discussing today, there's going to be a um, a difference in 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 pre-closing filing and how that affects risk. For example, what are the efforts that the purchaser will commit to in an agreement to obtain um, an approval? This is sort of more uh, sort of parallels what we would typically um, negotiate in an antitrust context. Uh, for a uh, transaction agreement. So how far will a purchaser go in obtaining um, the approval? What, to what extent will they agree to remedies? And, and what will they be the quantifiable amount of such remedies? And would they divest, you know, hell or high water, we call it, up to everything they acquire or something less or up to a material amount or up to... Um, you know, some economic quantifiable value of, of what they're willing to risk and put on the table in order to get this approval. Um, there's also timing risk. Um, how far will the parties, how long will the parties hold on in waiting for an approval? Um, you know, there'll be some sort of decision-making about whether the transaction itself falls within the scope of the, um, the, the categories that will require a pre-closing review. I imagine that will take on some sort of interpretive um, role for the parties, their counsel, and associated risk with that. Um, who will pay the penalties if they're wrong? Will one indemnify the other? I think these changes create a whole cascading um, the, the cascade of new issues and regulatory risk allocation uh, items for council to consider when they're negotiating and then after signing and, and up to closing as well. So I think, um, you know, it's important to keep in mind that as prospective investors, we want to really get on the ground at a very early stage. We want to assess the facts. We want to assess the risk. We want to make a strategy, develop a strategy, and have a real 360 view on how that 
uh, affects the various stakeholders uh, within government, outside of government, managing this increasingly unwieldy uh, and, and, and risky process in transactions. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. I just want to thank you both again for taking the time uh, to speak with us and also to our audience for listening in. Of course, if there are any topics covered today on which any of the audience would like further information, please do not hesitate to reach out to the Linklaters or Blake's contacts. Thanks again and have a great day.